0: turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, if you will, because that's where we are today, and many of you will know that we are making our way through uh, Hebrews. Uh, we started off rather slowly, um, taking two or three weeks to go through uh, a chapter, and then when we hit the sixth chapter, we've been doing a chapter of we- a week uh, right up through chapter 9 last week. So to, so now we come to chapter 10, and we're going to slow down a little bit again, and we'll probably have about three weeks here in the 10th chapter. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses today. But just to remind you of the background, uh, the author has been stressing the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus over that of Aaron, showing how Jesus has a A greater priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. It's an eternal priesthood. It's a priesthood that is not based on earth, uh, but it's a a priesthood that's right there in the very presence of God in heaven. Uh, We've seen how Jesus is the author of a new covenant, which is a better covenant than the old. And uh, the author has literally gone through and shown the how Jesus is greater than everything that preceded him and all of the things that preceded him going all the way back to uh, going to angels and Moses and Joshua and of course Aaron with the priesthood and the Sabbath. All of these things were temporary but they were all pointing ultimately to him and to what he would do. And so as we come to the 10th chapter he's now going to talk finally about the sacrifice of Jesus. And he's going to show us here in chapter 10 how the one sacrifice of Jesus was greater than all of the previous sacrifices combined. And it's how through the one sacrifice of Jesus that God has accomplished his great redemptive work on our behalf. So um, verses 1 through 18, let me read them. He says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, now notice this, this is a quote from the Psalm we just read, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. O God, previously saying sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin. You did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first covenant that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them, Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Did you notice how many times he referred to one sacrifice or or once and for all? And that's the emphasis uh, that he is now placing. It's on the superiority, like I said, of the sacrifice of Jesus. In contrast with the Levitical sacrifices that were many every day, uh, then the, the, uh, culminating in the, um, the day of atonement, but century after century after century, all of these sacrifices, but none of them could really do what needed to be done. Jesus did it all through one sacrifice. And so, he mentions, um, he starts the the emphasis on the one sacrifice back in the ninth chapter. And from uh, chapter 9, verse 12 on through chapter 10, verse 14, he makes reference uh, six different times to this one sacrifice. And let me just read over these real quickly to you just to get This locked into our minds. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 12. But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Uh, Verse 26 of chapter 9. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28 of chapter 9. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And then chapter 10, verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And then finally, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. There's a lot that he has stated in those passages there where he's referring to the one sacrifice. So I I want to look at the effects of this once and forever sacrifice. And there are many. We're going to look at three. Number one, this once and forever sacrifice put away sin. You see, the, the problem with the old sacrifices is they never really could do that. This sacrifice put away sin meaning that it forever moved it out of the way. Sin is no longer the obstacle that it has been. And you see, what sin does is it separates man from God. This is the problem. This is the problem in the world today. It's the problem uh, in every individual life for those who don't know Christ. The problem of mankind is that we are disconnected from our creator. We're separated from him. And it's sin that's brought about that separation. The Bible makes it clear that that is the case. Man is created. He's created in the image of God. He's created in fellowship with God, male and female. God makes them. We read there that God has fellowship with them in the garden. And then what happens? Sin enters in and they are expelled from God's presence. They're cast out from the presence of God. And then the rest of the historical narrative is uh, is in the context of this separation between God and man. Many centuries later, Isaiah, the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, he would say this, My ear is not heavy or plugged up that I cannot hear you. My arm is not shortened that I cannot save you, but your sins have separated you from your God. So that's the message that is repeated over and over in Scripture. It's this message of separation through sin. And the New Testament, of course, teaches the same thing. The New Testament tells us in Colossians 1.21 that we by nature are enemies and alienated from God by our wicked works. So that's the problem. The problem is separation from God. And so what does Jesus do? He comes and he deals with the problem the problem of sin, he put away sin. Now, some people say, well, why did, why did they have to do this? You know, and um, why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't God just look at our sins and say, you know what? You messed up. Just try to do better next time. And, and you know, since God is patient and everything, why couldn't he just keep doing that all the time? Why was there the necessity of a, of a sacrifice to be made or even more uh, specifically, why was there a penalty that had to be paid? And that's because God is just. Now, we oftentimes overlook this aspect of God's nature, his justice. We emphasize God's love. And that's a great emphasis. And I do that. And I want to do that. But we can't emphasize the love of God to the exclusion of God's justice because you can't have true love if there's injustice. And God is a just God. And the justice of God demands payment for our sins just the same way that the justice of the court demands payment for our crimes. You know, what kind of a legal system would it be That let every criminal off the hook just because, you know, just because. Well, yeah, we know you did this, but uh, we'll overlook that, and uh, we won't worry about that now. In in any society where the where the uh, that happens, we look at a society like that and say that's corrupt. That's wrong. No, that person's guilty. That person has committed crimes. That, that person needs to be dealt with. That person needs to be punished. We understand that. There's all kinds of injustice in the world. That's the failure to, uh, to uh, uphold justice. God doesn't do that. God is inflexible when it comes to justice, He is rigid. And there, there must be an absolutely just uh, standard that is applied. And Jesus, because none of us have, you know, lived up to the standard, we've all come short. We've all committed various uh, injustices. There's a payment that had to be made. And that's what Jesus did. Because the, the blood of bulls and goats could never do that. Someone would ask, well, if the blood of bulls and goats could never really take away sin, why, why were they sacrificed in the first place? Well, they were sacrificed as a temporary measure, first of all. They could cover sin, but they couldn't really put it away thoroughly. Because they're animals. They're, they have no, their, their blood has no power to do what really needs to be done. But not only were, was it a temporary measure, but it was also a reminder of the fact that we are sinners. We are sinners. Every time those animals were slain, it, it was a reminder that it was our sins that caused their death. And it was, a, it was a reminder that we should have died. They were dying as a substitute. But the blood of bulls and goats, as we read here in the 10th chapter, could never Put away sin. So Jesus came according to the will of God because the sacrifices and offerings could not do it. He came according to the will of God, a body God prepared for him, and it was through that body that he sacrificed himself. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins to meet the just demands of God And in doing so, forever removed sin as the obstacle to fellowship with God. So Jesus made a way back into fellowship with God. He forever removed the obstacle of sin. That's what it means when it says he put away sin. He put it away completely. So it's no longer the barrier. And now, through Jesus' sacrifice, many of the things that the Old Testament talked about in relation to God's heart and his uh, desire for people, they've all, they've all um, been realized now through the sacrifice that Christ made. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He has not dealt with us according to our sins or punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that great news? But you see, that's only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. The, the statement in the Psalms was predicated on what Jesus would do when he would come and offer himself as a sacrifice. That it was through that and because of that that God could remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That he would remember our sins no more. Micah says something similar in the very final uh, words of his little book of prophecy. He says this, Speaking of God, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And then he says, concerning God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus, through the one sacrifice, put away our sin. He cast them in the depths of the sea. So they're no longer an obstacle. So now we come back into fellowship with God. And that's what everything was uh, intended to be like originally. We come into the place that we were created to be in, and life suddenly gets much, much better, makes much more sense. So that's the first thing that happens. Secondly, as we look at these six uh, references to the once and forever sacrifice, we see that through that, Jesus sanctified and perfected forever those who trust in him so he sanctified and perfected forever now the word sanctify normally refers to the process that we go through after we become christians of being made holy in our behavior so sanctification has to do with this this process of becoming i like to I like to uh, describe it as becoming more like Jesus because that's, you know, Jesus is the Holy One. Uh, Sanctification is the process that we go through of making us more like Jesus. That's normally what the word sanctify means. But the author of Hebrews doesn't use it in that same way. He uses it to refer to what Paul would call justification. And justification is not describing the process that we go through after we're saved, of being made more like Christ, justification is the one-time event where God declares us to be righteous because of our faith in Christ. So what he's really describing when he talks about uh, having perfected forever those who are sanctified, he's really talking about um, the fact that positionally we are seen by God as perfect and that happened the moment you believed in Jesus and you're as perfect as you could ever be and there could never be any improvement on that because it's the, it's the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, something that's very helpful and very encouraging for us sinners is to know that we are positionally perfected before God. We need, we need to know that because we oftentimes live in a state of guilt and shame and condemnation because we know we fail, we know we sin, and we automatically think that our failure, our sin here on earth uh, puts us out of favor with God. But it, it doesn't. It doesn't. You see, because God sees us in Christ. So Let's just say God's looking down from heaven. Here he is today. He's looking at everyone here today. And there he sees us all. You're all sitting. He sees you there. I'm standing. He sees me here. He sees us all. And he sees you as perfect. He sees you as absolutely perfect. There's nothing, as he looks at you in that position in Christ, there's nothing that God says, oh, that's bad. That needs to be fixed. That needs to be purified. That needs to be cleansed. No, none of that's there. He looks at you and he sees you perfect. That's our position. We have that that position from God's point of view. Now, the person next to you, especially if you're married to them, Or if you're related to them, if you live in the same house with them, it's a completely different story, right? They're like, wait, no, no, they're not perfect. Believe you me, I know. So this is the distinction between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. And what a wonderful reality to know that positionally we're there, we're we're as, we're as righteous as we'll ever be. And we became as righteous as we'll ever be the moment we trusted in Jesus because it's through this one sacrifice that he perfected forever, those who are sanctified, those who are declared righteous. But then on the practical level, this is where sanctification comes in, God is still working all of that out. So we don't look to each other the same way we look to God. God sees us perfect, we see each other as imperfect. But... One day, that will change as well, because one day we, the sanctification process will be done and we will be uh, glorified. So that's what he tells us here, that it was through this one sacrifice that he uh, perfected forever those who are sanctified. And then thirdly, we read that it was through this one sacrifice that Jesus obtained for us eternal redemption. He obtained for us eternal redemption. The word redemption, as I pointed out before, the word redemption has the idea of of buying something back, to redeem something. It's something that you had once that was lost, and now you're going to get it back. You're going to get it back by a payment. Uh, So Jesus paid through his one sacrifice. He paid the, the payment that was due And so he has obtained for us through that payment of his own blood, he's obtained for us eternal redemption. Jesus has purchased us back from sin and Satan, and he's made us God's eternal possession. That is such wonderful news, isn't it? You belong to God. And, of course, we're told that in many different uh, passages in the New Testament. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his, Paul says to the Corinthians. And, you know, Peter reminds us that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so this idea of being purchased by God, bought by him, Jesus said that he was going to give his blood as a ransom, uh, his life as a ransom for our sin. And that's exactly what he did through this one sacrifice, he obtained for us eternal redemption. And so these are the things that, these are the effects of this once and forever sacrifice that Jesus made. The the priest who offered those offerings, those offerings could never really take away sins. They could never do the stuff that we're reading about here they as we studied last week they could never cleanse the conscience and we'll look at it that again next week because it comes back around to that but that cleansing that purification that inner um, work of the spirit none of that could happen through the the priest offering the the blood of the bulls and the goats and at the time that this letter was written to the Hebrews the priests were still doing that and remember, they were being tempted because of persecution. They were being tempted to go back to that system that was quickly going to be vanishing away. But the author's point is there's, no, there's nothing back there anyway. All of those sacrifices could never do what needed to be done. And the, the proof that they could never do it is that they never could cease they had to keep being offered over and over again. And as he pointed out in the very last verse there that we read, verse 18, he says, because if they would have accomplished what they were designed to do, bring us forgiveness, then they would have stopped. There's no, need, there's no more need for a sacrifice once sins are forgiven. But the fact that the sacrifices went on and on endlessly just was evidence that the sin was never really forgiven. And so Jesus, through the one sacrifice, did all that needed to be done. Now, the thing I wanna focus on as we wrap things up here uh, today is I wanna, I wanna talk in closing about this whole wonderful thing that we're talking about called salvation. And we use salvation as a general term for um, you know, the fact that we have become children of God and we're now going to heaven, we're not going to hell, and things like that. We, all of that's true. But what we need to understand is, uh, like I said, sal- salvation is a general term, but there are specific components to our salvation that it's helpful if we understand. I need, I need to know the different components. They're all together. You can't, you can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. But a lot of times we miss these components we don't realize that that you know it's it's not just this one general thing there's these these different aspects to it it's helpful for us to to understand this so from the start salvation is it it happens instantly Now some people have the idea that salvation is a long process now Undoubtedly, there can be a process that takes place. You, in other words, you, you, when you become a Christian, you can look back over your life and you can see, man, God's been working in my life for a long time. He's been convicting me, dealing with me, bringing people into my life, you know, allowing these things to happen. You, you, could, you can look back and you realize, wow, God's been at work a long time. But you weren't saved during that process. You, you got saved at a certain point. Some people think that getting saved itself is this long, long process that you never quite know if it even happens until you're dead and gone, and then you find out. I've always thought that, you know, that's the wrong time to find out if you're saved <laughs> when you're dead and you can't do anything about it. No, the Bible has, uh, there's a, a point of salvation, and that, that initial point is what the author here calls sanctified. But Paul calls it justified. So Hebrews writer and Paul use the word, uh, use these words a, a little bit differently. But I'm going to use the word justified because it, it's clearer, but it, in, in Hebrews 10, he uses the word sanctified, but he means the same thing. And justified is this. Justified is that positional thing that we were talking about a minute ago. It's God's declaration concerning me and you and everybody else who's put their faith in Jesus. It's God's declaration that we are now righteous. That's justification. That's what happens. It's like a, in a sense, it's like there's a cosmic element to it. It's where, you know, God is, seated there upon his throne, and he declares as the judge of the universe, he declares that we are uh, not only not guilty for the sins that we've committed, but we are righteous, positively righteous, because the righteousness of Jesus is put on our account. So that, at that instant, I'm saved, you're saved. Any person on the planet, that that believes in Jesus is saved. That instant, they're justified. Anybody throughout all of history who has just put their faith in Jesus, they're justified just like that. But along with that, at the very same instant, if you will, there's something that happens to you. See, this happens, it's like a transaction that happens in heaven in a sense, but there's something that happens on earth, there's something that happens in us, and this is called regeneration. Regeneration means to be given a new life. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You could translate that, you must be regenerated. Peter writes and says that we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that lives and abides forever. Peter could have said, uh, we've been regenerated. It's the same It means the same thing. Paul described this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he said, um, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, everything becomes new. So the moment I believe in Jesus, God declares me righteous, and then I'm regenerated. I'm made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes into my life and gives me life. So that happens, I'm regenerated. And the reason I bring this up is because it's important to recognize that it's not just a a pronouncement by God that we are righteous and then we go on our merry way and just keep living the way we've been living. No, the, the proclamation that we are righteous is accompanied by the power of God's spirit taking up residence in our lives, regenerating us, making us new. And then from that point begins a process that Paul will call sanctification, but we'll use a different word. Paul uses this word too, transformation, transformation. Now, sanctification, like I said, is it's the process that we go through after we're converted, we start in this process of being made holy or being made more like Jesus. It's a lifelong process. But you could also call it transformation. So that happens. God starts changing us. He starts transforming us. Uh, Oftentimes for a person, if you're involved in very uh, blatant kind of uh, sinful behavior, very um, obvious types of You know, big sin kind of things. There's an instantaneous change. Like the guys that we're going to see in the movie uh, this week, they were all imprisoned. They were all drug addicts. They were all violent criminals and all of this, and boom, they got saved. And David Zamora, who was there in. prison and, and, you know, had been a heroin addict for years and years and years. He said, Jesus, if you're real, come into my life and take this drug habit away from me. And he fell asleep and he woke up the next day and he never touched the drug again. So that's a radical, you know, kind of a transformation that takes place. But there's still a lot of things that we don't even think of sometimes as sin that our sin, that need to be cleansed out of us. And that happens over a process of time. And it really happens in many ways over our entire, the entire span of our lives. So, you know, I, man, I came to Christ and I got off alcohol like that. I came to Christ, I got off drugs like that. I came to Christ, I got out of prostitution. I came to Christ, I, you know, these big things that, that happen. Um, but I never even thought about my own greed, I never thought about my own prejudices, I never thought about my own hatred, I never thought about my own selfishness. Those were things that I wasn't really thinking about, but those are real sins that are deep down in my heart that this process of sanctification or transformation is dealing with throughout our lives. So that's what's happening. And then finally, salvation includes Glorification, and that is when you get a new body that doesn't have any sin in it and you never have any of these problems again forever. So, but let's look at these, each one, and let me just take each one of these and show you what happens with sin when, uh, when this particular thing happens. So with justification, we are immediately freed from sin The penalty and the guilt of sin. So the guilt of sin. We're guilty. God acquits us. The penalty is death. The penalty no longer applies. Jesus paid the price. Okay, that happens at justification. Regeneration, what happens? The Spirit of God comes in me and breaks the grip of sin over my life. So sin has a, a death grip on me, but the Spirit of God comes in and that death grip is broken. And that's why these kinds of dramatic types of things happen, like I just mentioned. Because suddenly that power of sin is broken because of now the presence of the Spirit in my life because of the regeneration that's taken place. But then, when it comes to transformation, we have contamination and pollution of sin that is then being washed out of us throughout our lifetimes so there's a transformation that's going on where the the, just the contamination of sin the pollution of sin the sin that's deep down in my heart that maybe I don't even realize is there at certain points and then suddenly one day you know something happens and I react in a certain way and I'm like oh my gosh that's sick that's so bad I, I didn't even know that was there That's the the contamination and the pollution of sin. And transformation is how that's being dealt with. And then finally, glorification, the very presence of sin will forever be uh, removed from our lives. There will be no more sin in us. And so as a result, there will be no more uh, sorrow. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more... um, moral corruption, there will be no more self-centeredness and self-serving and all of those things, it'll all be gone and we will have glorified bodies sinless bodies, bodies now that are um, like the body of Jesus without sin, free from sin all of this is the outcome of the once and forever sacrifice that Jesus made. This is what happens to those who receive that sacrifice. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus paid the once and forever price to put away our sin, to remove it forever as an obstacle so we could come into fellowship with God. Jesus paid the once and forever price to to save us, to get us in that positional righteousness. And then to work out his righteousness in our lives, he paid that once and forever price to redeem us back to God so that we would forever be God's people. He did it all on the cross. And so that's why we sing songs about the cross, the wondrous cross. That's why we sing songs about the blood of Jesus. That's why we meditate on the the sacrifice that he made because it was through that one sacrifice forever that he obtained for us eternal redemption. He put away our sin forever. So our response is just one of, thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I want to show you how much I appreciate that by giving myself entirely to you. Because of course, that's his desire. He he redeemed us for himself that he might have his own special people, zealous to love him and to serve him and to do his work. And that's how, we, that's how we show our thankfulness for all that he's done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just take these great, amazing truths concerning our salvation, concerning our redemption, And Lord, just impress them so deeply uh, upon our hearts and into our minds. Lord, that we would be transformed through these great truths, through that working of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that positionally we are righteous before you. Thank you, Lord, that we are regenerated. We have a new life. Thank you that you're changing us from the inside out and thank you that one day we're gonna be sin-free. We praise you for that, Lord. And may we go this week back out into life and may we just have hearts full of joy because of what you've done. And Lord, as people around us who are miserable because of the weight of sin that's still upon them, Lord, may we be able to share the hope of the gospel with many this week. So, Lord, here we are. Work, use us. Lord, I pray for anyone today who is yet to come and receive that forgiveness, who is yet to come and apply that one sacrifice that you offered forever to their own life. Help them to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.